0: Happy Advent, this is our third week of Advent and we're talking about joy today. I want to begin by saying don't let the title of the sermon fool you. This may not be a very pleasant or joyful sermon It would seem that I would be much happier than I am. My bills are all paid. Work is going well. My marriage has some problems, but nothing me and my spouse can't work through. I don't have many negative memories from my past. It seems like I would be happier than I am. So why am I so unhappy? This was the question that was posed to me by a Christian woman in her late 40s. And my advice to her was to go and see a counselor to see what was plaguing her emotions. So she went to see a professional with the hope that the counselor could help her. After the counselor gave her a couple tests, he concluded that she wasn't suffering from depression. That's not what it was. And so all he could do for her was to offer her some techniques to help her be more optimistic about life, get some hobbies, get out of the house more exercise, more regular, things like that. But her sadness continued and not satisfied with his diagnosis, I told her to go to see her family doctor to get a physical, because sometimes your physical body, when it's ailing, it can cause depression and anxiety, strokes, heart attack, high blood pressure, all these things can cause emotional upheaval. So I told her to go see her doctor and She went to her doctor, and the doctor checked her vitals, checked her brain, checked her heart, checked all of these things, checked her blood, and she concluded that the sister was in fair health. And so the doctor offered to give her some medication to help cheer her gloomy disposition, but it didn't work. The pills did what they were supposed to do, but they didn't alleviate her sense of sadness, her sense of melancholy. This woman was a Christian and she loved Jesus, no doubt about it. But even though she was a devoted believer, she still dealt with deep, unyielding sorrow from time to time. And So being curious, I asked her about her vision for the future. What do you look forward to the most? What gives you the most joy? We talked and we talked about all the things that make life worth living. And one thing she said was that she felt unfulfilled, but she didn't know what needed to change in order to make her feel more happy. But she was certain of one thing, that something had to change. And I was stumped. I felt guilty that I couldn't help her to resolve her emotional struggle. And I was quite frankly mystified by her inability to find joy. One of the things you try to never do as a pastor is to internalize other people's feelings and frustrations. You try to maintain your integrity by leaving all of your ministerial conversations on the counseling floor. But for some reason I couldn't shake this one. There was something about her situation that beckoned me. Something about her hopeful sadness that spoke deeply to me. One night I was sitting on my back porch in Chicago considering her situation, her sadness and her dryness and seemingly out of nowhere it occurred to me that I too had a subtle sense of sadness. Her dilemma spoke to me because her situation is the same situation, believe it or not, of every believer. And I realized that she was right. Something did need to change if we were going to find true joy. But what needed to change was not her job and not her marriage and not her lifestyle. In fact, what needs to change is not within our power to change. The Christian life is a life of waiting, yearning, envisioning, and anticipating. This is why Advent, this time of year, this is why this time of year speaks so profoundly to me. Because through the year, I try to pay little attention to my deepest yearnings because it tends to slow me down when I put too much focus on my future glory. But during this season, I slow down just enough to allow myself to know my own sadness. During this season, I switch gears and intentionally yield to my sorrows and make room for my disappointments as I wait for the change, for the joy and the happiness that Jesus promises will be mine in a little while. Happiness. Dr. Richard Bondi explains that happiness is the subjective judgment that a positive relation exists between an individual's present circumstances and his vision of what constitutes the good life. Therefore, when a person's present situation does not comport with his vision of the good life, there is sorrow. And for the believer, Jesus Christ And the union with Jesus Christ is our primary vision and definition of what it means to have a good life. For us, Jesus Christ is the good life and our souls find no rest in this world until we finally know him and see him as he is. Jesus' disciples in this verse had joy because they were speaking with God incarnate. John says in 1 John chapter one that they saw Jesus, they touched Jesus, they heard Jesus. He was not an illusion to them. He was not present only in their minds. Jesus was right there visibly, physically in their midst and their joy was complete. They were deeply satisfied with because their present situation and their vision for what constituted a good life aligned so perfectly in him. So imagine the horror when Jesus informs them in John chapter 16, verse 16, that things were about to change. Jesus says, a little while, and you no longer are going to see me. A little while. Time and the nature of time is concrete, factual reality, time is real. But our sense of time is subjective. It's kind of like a doorknob. To the small child, the doorknob seems very high. But to a giant, the door would seem very low. Our sense of time is relative to our experiences. And depending on your age, time may seem to race by or time may seem to crawl. For example, to the 60-year-old man, one year is 160th of his lifetime, to the six year old boy, one year is only one sixth of his lifetime. Experientially then, one year passes by the 60 year old much faster. Time seems to go by much faster. So when we read Jesus' statement that a little while you will no longer see me, we each measure a little while differently and even though we may measure time differently jesus prophetic words here affect every believer the same way a little while and you're not going to see me anymore if you've lost a parent or someone that you look to for guidance and acceptance and for 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 unconditional support then you know what this feels like for them. I recall many years ago now, standing by my mother's bedside in the hospital. And I told her, I said, Mom, when we get home this time, I'm gonna change your diet. We're gonna ask the doctor to prescribe you some new medication and and you're gonna be much better. You're going to be fine, Mom. Once we get you home and take good care of you, you're gonna be just fine. And my mother looked up to me from the bed, and she beckoned me to come closer. And I leaned over and came in closer to my mom, and she patted me on my back three times like she used to do when I was a little boy, and she didn't say a word. She just tapped me three times and smiled. (laughs) And I knew when she touched me that I was not going to see her alive again. I knew it, that in a little while, I am not going to see her anymore. I kept a straight face while I was standing there beside her bed, of course, but as I walked to the elevator, it was like I was walking in a trance. I could see, but I wasn't looking. I could hear, but I wasn't listening. I was crushed with the feeling of hopelessness and helplessness. Too difficult to put into words. The next day, my mother died. And I miss her still. But I miss Jesus even more. He is gone. He is not here. That reality sets off inside of the believer a deep sense of abandonment, as though we have been orphaned cast out and left on our own to fend for ourselves in this gloomy and dark world. To fend for ourselves against the darkness of doubt and despair. To defend our willingness to put off momentary pleasure in deference to a future promise. For Jesus continues to say, a little while and you no longer are going to see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. It is difficult to put into words my, our, our desperate need and our desperate desire to see Jesus Christ face to face. We have never seen him physically, tangibly, but our hearts know him very well. And every believer yearns within ourselves, waiting sometimes, anxiously waiting for Jesus Christ to finally and tangibly reveal himself to us. But we have to go on living our lives because this is his assignment for us to keep busy working in his vineyard, planting and harvesting, proclaiming him to the masses, all the while missing him, needing him, waiting for Jesus Christ in this precarious place called the little while. The now and not yet, the yes and the no of this life of faith. So his disciples upon hearing this, they they became agitated. And they like we today have a lot of questions. Verse 17 says, some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he is telling us? This doesn't make sense, this can't be right. A little while and you're not going to see me and again, a little while and you will see me and because I'm going to the Father. What is this he is telling us? And what really set them off was not the idea that Jesus was going to the Father, but it was this concept of a little while. They complained about it in verse 18. What is this that he says? A little while we do not know what he's talking about they're frustrated they do not feel they have the stamina or the fortitude to be in this world without Jesus it feels overwhelming and they are not pacified by Jesus cryptic saying it feels too indefinite a little while how long is a little while? Give us a date positive, why won't you? Give us some better idea of when you're leaving and when you're coming back. Hmm. But Jesus knew they wanted to question him and he said to them, are you deliberating together about this? That I said a little while and you're not going to see me and again a little while and you will, are you deliberating together about this? The answer is yes, they were deliberating. They were deliberating together about this. But the more they deliberated, the less they understood what he was saying. That's why I don't enjoy eschatology very much, end times study. It seems like the more we deliberate among ourselves regarding the end times, the less we seem to know and the more eccentric and elaborate become our predictions. There's war in Israel, surely this must be the sign of the end of times. Surely Jesus must be coming soon. Look, there are earthquakes in various places around the world. This must be the coming of Jesus. For many believers eschatology in time study is like psych meds that we take to keep our blues away. We see Jesus coming around every corner and this engenders within us a sense of excitement and ecstasy, happiness, that keeps us from falling into deep sorrow. But no matter how much end times prediction the believer may consume, at the end of the day Jesus has still not returned. We are still lonely and longing for him. This loneliness is not something we want to avoid. Instead, we should embrace it. Our future hope is both a source of encouragement, but it's also a source of great sorrow. Jesus says to them and to us, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and mourn. Weeping and mourning is part of the Christian walk. Did you know that? Weeping and mourning is part and parcel of the Christian life. We barely ever, if at all, focus on this aspect of the Christian walk because it almost seems contradictory to faith. But Jesus says here, that to weep and mourn is going to be normative for the believer. It is not strange for the believer to weep and to mourn. We do weep and we do mourn. But when we mourn, we turn to one another or we go out into the world and try to identify the source of our sorrow because it never occurs to us that our own faith could be the source of our discontent faith that stares into the face of Jesus Christ faith that is so certain of his presence and causes a disconnect from our natural senses because we cannot see him faith that keeps Jesus ever before our spiritual eyes as the greatest good but faith that can never produce him in any tangible way it causes sorrow And there is always this temptation, this alluring prospect that our happiness lies out there somewhere. All we have to do is to change our surroundings. All we have to do is to modify our philosophy of life, scrutinize our associations. Maybe then we will be happy. After all, the world is happy. And I am sure that we Christians should be more happy than the world, right? Jesus says here that while we are weeping like we're at a funeral, the world will rejoice. How can this be? How can the world be more happy than the Christian? How can the world be so happy, yet the followers of Jesus Christ be so gloomy? Well, it's because in large part, the world is happy because the world has found the things that it considers to be the good life. If happiness is the subjective judgment that a positive relation exists between an individual's present circumstances and his vision for what constitutes the good life, if the world constitutes the good life as a crust of bread and a corner to sleep in, if the world views the good life as all of its bills being paid and some money in the bank and a healthy family, if this is what the world considers to be the good life, then the world has all it desires and the world has no reason to be sad. What we believers desire is something more than this. Certainly we are glad if our children are healthy and striving, yes, that makes us glad. Certainly we are pleased if we have work and we have purpose in life, yes, that makes us happy. But still, we have not acquired the thing we desire the most. We have not yet laid hold of the one who has laid hold of us, heart, mind, soul, and spirit. We have not acquired him yet. We have not yet become forever united with Jesus Christ. And for us, this is the only good life. This void that we have cannot be filled by all the treasures in the world. Our yearning cannot be abated by anything this world has to offer. And so Jesus says, you will grieve, Christian. Don't think it's strange. You will grieve. There are no 30 ways about this. If you are truly seeking Jesus, you are going to grieve. You are going to grieve because no matter how many books you read, no matter how much theology you discover, no matter how often you go to church and serve and sing and participate, you will not be able to overcome the deep cry of a child who feels abandoned in this world, lost and left and lonely, looking for Jesus. You will grieve, Jesus says. But your grief will be turned into joy. And he gives this analogy of a woman in labor. He says in verse 21, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come and you all know this scientifically, biologically, when the woman is in active labor, her cervix dilates two to four inches. Did you know that? That just sounds scary saying it. Her cervix dilates two to four inches. Her contractions become stronger. Her legs begin to cramp and she may feel nauseated. She may begin to experience extreme pain and pressure in her back, labor pains. It sounds painful. It is. <laughs> for most women it is painful. But the pain only lasts for a little while. Now just look around you at any woman in this room who's delivered a child and see them roll their eyes at me for saying that. Because that little while for the woman seemed like a lifetime of pain. But if you're honest with yourselves, women who've had children, if you're honest with yourselves, when you look back on your labor from a completely objective viewpoint, you have to admit that in the grand scheme of time, your labor was only for a little while. For a little while she was in pain, but when she gives birth to the child, Jesus says, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. And what Jesus is reassuring us of here is that while the pain may sometimes seem unbearable, when it's all over, when you see me face to face, you will find that the pain was all worth it. I know you've been waiting and serving for many years. I know that the pain of my absence is hurtful, painful, and even frustrating sometimes. I know you would prefer to get it over with today, but Jesus promises you that if you'll just hang in there, if you'll just keep the faith, if you will not look to the world for distractions from your pain, but instead embrace your pain and allow yourself room to grieve when he finally comes, you will find that it will all have been worth it. You have grief now, Jesus says. But I will see you, thank you Jesus. But I will thank you Jesus. But I will see you again. I love what Jesus does right there. Because at first Jesus told them that they were going to have sorrow because they could not see him, because they could not be with him, because they could not touch him. But in verse 22 he turns it around. And he reveals to us that not only are we missing him, but he is also missing us. He doesn't say, you will see me again. He says, I will see you again. Meaning that Jesus Christ longs for you and I as much as we long to see him. When I was in Korea, I used to call my wife and I would ask her to look up at the moon And I would tell her that at that very moment, I was looking at the moon with her from across the globe. And that we were connected because we were focused on the same thing. We were both looking at the moon. We could share that experience together. And this is that north star between us and our savior, Jesus Christ. I cannot see him. He cannot physically touch me. But we both sit and we stare at the bond between us. And we are connected by something stronger than the waves of the sea or the birth of any star. We are made one by our love for one another. Jesus promised, I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice. And no one is going to take your joy away from you. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it was David who said that as the deer pants for the water brook, so do our souls pant after you in a dry and a thirsty land. Some of us, maybe even many of us, are feeling gloomy. Could be due to the seasons changing, could be due to the time of year. But some of us, Lord Jesus, are just longing and desiring earnestly to see your face. waiting patiently for that day when you come in the clouds and we see you as you are and we ourselves are transformed by the glory and the wonder of your presence. Truly God, there is nothing we desire more than this. Truly God, for us, this is the good life. We pant after you, we desire you with all that we have. We confess today that we often distract ourselves from focusing on that future glory because we don't want to feel the pain of waiting. But this pain is part and parcel of our walk with you. To lament your absence. to grieve your absence. And even though it does not necessarily feel like a healthy thing to do, I pray that on this week you will give us opportunities to sit and to yearn and to long and to mourn and to grieve. That our hearts might cry out, even so, come Lord Jesus and come quickly. We are desperate for your touch. Desperate to see you, desperate to know you. Hmm. And our hearts will find no rest in this world until we rest forever with you. This is the purpose of our walk. This is the reason why we are here. To draw closer to you, to prepare ourselves to see you on that great day to be transformed into your light and into your glory forever. Until then, Lord, as we abide here in the middle, in the little while, be with us to strengthen and encourage us, to give us vision, to help us to hear your voice and to understand your will for our lives. so that we're not distracted by this world, but we are engrossed in serving you and serving your kingdom each and every day until you come. Be glorified. In Jesus' name.